that's fun to get to celebrate something like that. Uh, I have actually one more announcement. Um, Next Sunday, we go to one service, okay, 10 a.m. So if you show up at the time that you showed up here, uh, you'll be quite late for that service. You'll get this, you'll get the uh, tail end of a message and maybe that's all you want. And, uh, but, uh, so next Sunday, one service for the summer, we'll add more seating in here. And, uh, it's generally pretty packed out because of the one service thing. And, uh, just put that on your calendar. Remember that that, that change is coming next Sunday. So let's pray one more time. Father, we uh, delight at being able to gather as uh, this local body of followers of your son, Jesus. And we would ask that you teach us now, Lord, as we reflect more on this subject of work. Uh, We would ask that you uh, speak to each one as only you can, very personally. And we would ask that you uh, help us to listen for what you're saying to us and help us to respond, Lord, in terms of what you want us to do. For we ask this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen? Amen. Well, I'm going to start this message like I started last week. I'm going to start with a question. The question is simple. Have you ever had a job you didn't like? Anybody ever had a job you didn't like? Most of us, most of us raise our hands. Researchers at the University of Aberdeen a few years ago found that the single, this is really remarkable, the single most important factor in life satisfaction is job satisfaction. That even above uh, a bigger predictor of life satisfaction, more than even satisfaction with your family, more than satisfaction in your leisure time, more than satisfaction with your health or your finances or your social life. Uh, that's really remarkable, actually. What's more, there was a Gallup poll done a few years back in 2013 of about a quarter million people. They found out that only 30% of employees indicated that they are engaged and inspired in their workplace, which I guess means 70% of us have kind of checked out when it comes to the workplace and and really being inspired and being engaged there. All of that to say people who are happy in their work tend to be happy in their lives, and people who are miserable in their work tend to be miserable people in their lives. Therefore, your work is incredibly important to your life, and what is more, we've been underlining the fact that last Sunday we began this, that your work is incredibly important to God. It really matters. Uh, We're in this little series where we're trying to help bring our, our work life and our God life, the life we live with God, together into one life. That's the objective here. And so this morning, the way I thought about coming at this kind of corny, but anyway, it'll work. Uh, Let's talk about the Ten Commandments of work. Are you excited? The Ten Commandments. So I have ten points in this message. Only ten. Are you ready? Here we go. Number one, thou shalt thank God it's Monday, right? Why on earth would we thank God for being Monday? Well, God invented Monday, number one. And the fact of the matter, too, is God invented work. In Genesis 2, we read this. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Notice the first person in the Bible to work is it's God. Uh, when we read, in the beginning, God created. That means that in the beginning, God was working. God was working even before creation. This idea of a God who works was actually unique in the ancient world. 
uh, in particular to Israel. Other religions in the ancient world actually taught that the gods, whoever they were, uh, created human beings to work for them, you see. It was human beings who brought the gods food and brought the gods drink and ran the gods errands and did the gods labor. Uh, This way the gods could sleep and party and make mischief, do whatever they wanted. Get this, Zeus had no job. Baal had no job. Molech had no job. Yahweh, the God of Israel, had a job. The God of Israel was the only God who worked. And this had a huge implication for that time, and it still has a huge implication for today. Understand, Israel was virtually the only ancient people who viewed work as dignifying rather than demeaning, something you didn't want to do. In ancient Greece, uh, tradespeople, folks who practice a trade, were almost always slaves or servants. There were actually Greek cities that passed laws prohibiting citizens in that city from doing any manual work. Work was to be done by slaves, by women, by servants, non-citizens. Now, by contrast, in Israel, just to show you the contrast, in the writings of the people of Israel, in the Talmud, uh, this is one of their uh, values that they embrace. He who does not teach his son a trade is as if he teaches him robbery. Huge difference from other people's perspective. In Israel, they love trades, as you well know. Peter was a... Paul was a a tent maker, you remember? Jesus was a a carpenter. This is not an accident that this happened. Uh, They loved work. What is work? Well, a quick definition would be work is the expenditure of energy for the creation of value. In other words, when we engage using our skills, passions, abilities, what have you, uh, when we perform work, we want to see something purposeful come out of it, something of meaning, something of value. Well, this Monday, whether you are making the big bucks or whether you're earning minimum wage, whether you're a student or whether you're retired for that matter, makes no difference. Whether you work for a great boss or Attila the Hun, doesn't matter. Whether you're headed for the shark tank or the think tank, doesn't matter. This Monday, when you wake up, if you understand the significance and the importance of work, you ought to get up saying, thank God it's Monday. Thank God God is a working God. Thank God God has made me in his image. Thank God that I get to work today. Amen. Anybody with me? We'll see tomorrow. Okay. Uh, Here's the second commandment. Take a look at this short little clip. It's from a TV comedy, a sitcom called Silicon Valley. Uh, It's about these two nerdy, nerdy guys who are, they're entrepreneurs. They're trying to hire just the right people to join their engineering team. And you can take a look.
So there's our, uh, our second commandment. Thou shalt crush it as unto the Lord. Uh, this is Paul writing to the church at Colossae. He says this, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. So crush it. Give it all you have as though working for Jesus. Genesis tells us that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. In other words, when God gave the human race dominion over creation, he was actually assigning us a job. He was assigning us the work of culture making and creation care. God gave human beings work to do and a space to work in. He gave us a mission to work on. He gave us resources to work with, and he gave us accountability to work under his reign. You see, we are accountable to him. Uh, I have a question for you. How many of you would work a little differently this week if Jesus were literally your boss? Anybody? If Jesus were literally your boss. Here's the interesting deal. Jesus literally is your boss. If you don't understand that, you have missed something very, very significant about the Christian life. Um, Here's the thing, you see. Jesus is being blessed by, Jesus is being served by, Jesus is being represented by you in the kingdom of work. And he just delights in that, that you represent him there. And our aim is to do the very best work we can do, to crush it, to be the most diligent, the most creative, the most focused, the most initiative-taking, best worker we can be because we work for for Jesus. Let's try that again. Because we work for... There we go. That's good. So crush it. Crush it as unto the Lord. How do I crush it? Well, that's our next commandment. Commandment number three. Thou shalt remember the easy yoke. What is the easy yoke? Jesus said this one time to his disciples. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And you know what? All statistics show that more and more people these days are more and more worried and burdened in the workplace. So this applies, I think, to all of us. It says, and I will give you rest. That's the promise of Jesus. I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a very interesting statement made by Jesus. Now, Jesus, as often as he does, he, he does this frequently. He uses a picture from the world of work, in this case, from the field of agriculture, uh, you all understand an ox, of course, is a working animal. And uh, you may know uh, that when an ox is in a yoke, how many of them are working together? It's, it's two. That's uh, why Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Share it with me because it requires two. Uh, the idea here that Jesus is actually highlighting is this notion of never working alone. Always work with Jesus. Dallas Willard, whose writings I I really appreciate, he's uh, taught me many things from the things I've read from him. He says this, he says, if you are a plumber and you're going somewhere to clean out a sewer, is the example he uses, he says, stay attentive to what you were doing at that particular moment and always ask yourself, how do I do this with Jesus? How do I do this as if I have Jesus' help here to do this task? And the point is, if you encounter difficulties with the people that you're serving in your work or if it's just a pipe that needs unclogging, you never fight that battle alone. Never. You invoke the presence of God. You remember the presence of God with you. And you expect to see something happen that is not 
just the result of you and your efforts. The crucial thing is to be attentive to God's hand and not get locked into the lie that it's just me and the pipe. Say that with me. It's just me and the pipe. That's a, you can say that with me. It's just me and the pipe. See, that is a lie. That is a lie. Uh, what we want to do is we want to live in the reality of the presence of God and his kingdom. This is having the kingdom of God invade the kingdom of plumbing, if that's where you work, or uh, electrical work, or teaching, or parenting, or engineering, or sales, or financial management. Whatever it is you do, Jesus wants to invade that kingdom with his kingdom. It's never just about you and the pipe. Never. It's never just about you and the computer. It's never just about you and the angry customer. It's never just about you and the cash flow problem. It's never just about you and the broken equipment. It's always about you and Jesus. So it's always an attitude of saying, Jesus, how are you going to help me in this place of work? How are we going to do this? Dallas Willard said, always invoke the presence of Jesus and then praise him for being there. And see what happens as a result of working with Jesus as opposed to working alone. So I, I talk to him about my work problems. I talk to Jesus and I ask him for help. And I praise him in advance for the fact that he's with me and he's going to get me through this. And he's going to bring glory and honor to himself. And I look for it and I put a heavy, the heavy burden of stress and worry on him instead of taking it upon myself. Uh, you see, it's not work that crushes people. And gives them worries and this sense of burden. Uh, it's the pressures and the stress of work that crushes us when we think we have to bear that self, uh, that stuff ourselves. The only antidote for that is this thing of the easy yoke. Jesus has an easy yoke. That's what he calls it. Understanding that Jesus is yoked together with me, that he is there, that his wisdom, his power uh, is available to me. That is what relieves me or can relieve me of the stress of the pressure, of the worry. We need to pray for that every day. That's the third commandment. And I would just say this as an aside. If we actually practice this, this would change the entire landscape of what we do in our workplace as opposed to thinking it's just us, it's just what I do, it's all up to me, I'm, fr I'm frightened of whether I can even succeed to, or, or overcome the challenge that's in front of me. Huge, huge issue in the workplace for Christians. Here's the fourth commandment. Thou shalt not be defensive. Okay? You know, work is one of the best places in the world to learn the truth about yourself. It really is. Uh, this is from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs says, Pride only breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take, who receive advice. Work is such a great place to be humbled and to learn the truth about yourself. When I graduated from college, Covenant College, Holly and I were engaged to be married, but she had a year of college to uh, finish. So I got a job offer from Covenant College to be their first head resident director at the school. And they told me uh, that I would be doing things like organizing the other RAs they were hiring, doing some training with them, making all the room assignments, and be in charge of one of the men's dorms that I, I would have uh, direct oversight myself. Sounded very interesting to me. There was a problem, however. No one there had ever done any of this before. Uh, there were no policies. There were no procedures. There were no best practices. They just said, figure it out. 
And so I figured it out with uh, little or no help, really. Uh, Do you have any idea how complicated it is to receive 500 requests from returning students for roommates, for room assignments? There are about a dozen rooms that every student wanted, right? It was crazy. Some students have medical issues. Some have physical limitations. Some, uh, of course, who are upperclassmen expect finally to get the room request they've been requesting for four years, right? And having to sort out all of those details and make those decisions was, it was awful. It was absolutely awful. Uh, each week I had a meeting with the dean of students, Carl Henning at the time, and we would review kind of where we were, what got done, what still needed doing, and that type of thing. And in those work meetings and work reviews, job evals, uh, I learned how to receive some really honest feedback. Uh, apparently, um, according to Carl, I was knocking it out of the park when it came to motivating the RAs, creating a sense of team, interacting with students, overseeing discipline issues. That was one of my responsibilities. Sometimes I would bring faculty or administration into discipline situations, and we would process that and figure out discipline for students who were uh, outside the boundaries of the school rules. But when it came to filing reports and writing policies and procedures and other administrative picky little details, I was somewhat of an underachiever. That was the word he used, an underachiever. No one had ever told me I was an underachiever before, and it hurt me to discover some of my weaknesses, but, but it did help me. It helped me do better in areas where I knew I had weaknesses, where I knew I needed to improve, and so I had certain things I just had to do, and I, I had to listen, I had to learn, I had to work smarter and work differently, and, and I learned I, I could be a decent administrator if I really worked at it, if I really applied myself, but this was not my natural gifting, not at all. And here's really what I'm driving at. Those criticisms that I received from Carl Henning could have crushed me. In my own you know, self-awareness and sinfulness, uh, I could have felt like a loser. I could have felt, oh, man, he's telling me this area that I'm not good at. It, it could have just crushed me. But here's the thing. He was really good at reminding me of this, and, and, and this has really stuck with me uh, to the present day, and that is this, that our worth and our identity is it's already a done deal with God. You know that, right? It's already a done deal. Work does not add a thing to my worth or to my identity. God loves me. And so followers of Jesus ought to be the most coachable people in the marketplace. Theoretically, we should be. We have no need to be defensive. We can receive feedback because our identity isn't tied to our performance. It just isn't. Our identity, who we are, the worth that we have is a gift, a gift from Jesus. There's a Christian psychologist, writes a lot of books. His name is Dr. Henry Cloud, and he makes a suggestion to workers. I find this very interesting. It's a bold suggestion. Uh, it would require a great deal of boldness from anyone who would do this. But he says, you ought to invite somebody at work who's not your biggest fan to meet with you, to sit down, have coffee, what have you. And then just tell them, hey, I need some feedback. I, I'm not always the best at receiving feedback, but I would really like to know what it's like to work with me. That's the question he tells, uh, advises us to put to people. What's it like to be on the other side of me? And then he says, just listen. Take notes. Don't explain. Don't defend. Don't try to solve problems that they may point out. Just learn, he says. Um, 
Thou shalt not be defensive. You know, one of the things that we've put in place here with the staff is just that we want to get better and better and better at what we do. So we have regular evaluations on how we're doing. All of us, uh, except me. And uh, no, it's not true. I have it too. We all do. And it's really out of a goal of, you know, hey, our worth, our value, our identity is already, the score is settled there. So this isn't about, you know, pointing out to a staff person how broken they are, how they suck at this or suck at that. That's, that, no, this is about wanting to make it better and wanting to work in an environment where we're always encouraging each other to do that. But it does mean you've got you've to lower those barriers of defensiveness. Otherwise, you know, you just want to constantly explain, well, yeah, well, that happened because, well, that, yeah, but that wasn't my fault. But no, wait a minute, let's just talk about how you're put together, how you could improve, how you could grow. And, and uh, well, we, we hope that in the process we become more like Jesus. We get more well-rounded in terms of the leadership and the, the guidance that we bring to ministry. So thou shalt not be defensive. What a great way to grow, right? It's just listening to feedback, taking criticism. Are you with me so far? Okay, number five, thou shalt not compare thy career advancement with others. This is really important. Proverbs says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Do you see that contrasting picture? One place is a place of peace, bringing life to the body. The other one is rotting, rotting flesh, rotting right to the bones. You see, work is a place where all the ugly stuff can quickly come to the surface as we watch others that we work with. Maybe they're doing more than us, achieving more than us, or maybe it's less, and we start comparing. I was talking to a business guy once, and he told me that he would read articles in his area of expertise, in his area of business, and uh, if he would read about guys that were older than him and further along in the process, it was like, yeah, that's really good, that's awesome, I, I can celebrate that. But if he would read about guys who were younger than him and outperforming him, it just drove him crazy. Uh, he said it was painful. He found himself envying them, even becoming resentful that others were outstripping him in terms of achievement. Now, just time for you know, honesty here. Anybody here ever envy somebody? Before you, we're going to do a show of hands on this, okay? A little bit of honesty time. If you've ever envied someone else's job, raise your hand. Now, keep it up. Keep it up. It won't be long. How about their office? Anybody ever envied some, Okay, somebody. Oh, how about title? Maybe they have a better title. How about career path? Uh-huh. Uh, salary? Ever envy somebody? Okay, salary. There you go. Envied their boss. This happens all the time around here. People just... You know, they want a boss like me, you know, but abilities, you, you see somebody with incredible abilities and you're just like, oh, come on. Right. Okay. So here's the thing. Hopefully we all agree. We all have an envy problem because that's, I think the truth about us. We all have an envy problem. Another question. How has envy improved your life? It, it, it doesn't, it, it can't improve someone's life. Envy is not an optimal life enhancement strategy. It is the opposite. Here's something else that's interesting about envy. You can't stop envying simply by trying harder to stop envying. It doesn't work. It gets way down deep inside us because of our sin, because of our brokenness, in part even because of that identity thing we just talked about. You know, years and years ago, I was sent here to plant a church from a church in Boca Raton, Florida called Spanish River Church. And uh, Spanish River's heart was all in on planting churches. And, and so every year they would have a, uh, a conference for church planters that they were sending out into the field. 
And with every year, more and more of us that were getting sent out would come back for this conference. One year, uh, very early on, maybe this was the third year or so that this conference was taking place, uh, I was flying down there, flew into to Boca, and uh, got picked up at the airport. Anybody want to guess by who? Dr. Tim Keller. Anybody ever heard of Tim Keller? Yeah. Yeah, he's my chauffeur. And... Uh, <laughs> So Tim had just started planting the Redeemer Church in, in New York City in Manhattan. And, uh, and Tim was one of the participants of this conference and was every year uh, and he eventually became a teacher there. Tim, if you know anything about Tim, is a really bright guy. But uh, anyhow, we would, we would come to this conference and the more of us there were, you would always go down there with some fear and trembling because you knew what was going to happen. One way or another, there would be this, well, I could think of a term for this, but you can't really say it in the sermon. But it was a... Um, it was sort of a battle over how everybody was doing and how their work was going. And the conversation would always somehow got around to how many people are coming to your church now and what is the budget and nickels and noses, that kind of thing. And uh, some guys would just be flourishing. Others would be really struggling. Some of those guys that were attempting to plant churches, those churches no longer exist. Somehow Tim made it. But anyway... Um, I, I can remember feeling so insecure about going to these things. In years where it was going really well, I couldn't wait to get down there. You know, you know how lame this, this can all be. But uh, here, here's the thing. I knew that I needed to find a way to battle this problem of envy. And so I don't know if I read it. I don't really remember where I got it, but somewhere I came up with the idea of praying for these fellow pastors. That if I really prayed for them, just prayed that they would soar, prayed that their works would be really advancing the kingdom. And if I made a commitment to pray for them, especially as it drew near the time of, of going down there, well, then how can I be struggling with envy if what's really going on is just an answer to my prayer, you see? And God, I, I found that God really liberated my spirit and my soul from some of, from a lot of that envy problem just by praying for those that, that I might be tempted to envy. And I actually found that freeing. I found my soul freed up. So, so if you have people, I would just suggest, if you have people maybe at work or whatever that you tend to envy, and envy usually leads to resentment, then you know, start praying for them. And see if God doesn't do a work in your heart to bring about change so that your heart starts to look a lot more like Jesus' heart. Okay? Okay, number six. Here we go. Thou shalt expect problems. I know this is shocking. You know, we have this strange tendency. We expect to go to work, but then we're surprised when problems happen at work. You know, we don't expect work to be hard. Uh, friends, work is hard. That's why it's called work. Work is always hard. Part of what happened at the fall when sin entered into the picture is that work got all messed up. You see, sometimes some people think that work uh, is actually something we have to do because of the fall and that before the fall there was no work and so someday when we go to heaven we're just going to get to sit around and we'll be on an eternal vacation and the time for work will finally be done it'll be over friends nothing could be further from the truth that, that's not what's going to happen in heaven god himself worked before the fall you understand and he gave people work to do before sin was ever in the picture what happened at the fall when sin entered the picture is that work got all messed up it changed uh, in Genesis 3, God is talking to Adam. This is after the fall, after sin has entered the picture. And he says, now the ground will produce thorns and thistles. In other words, before, whatever you planted, that's exactly what came up. Not anymore. 
not because of the fall. He also said, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. Before, I guess there was little or no sweat. You would plant, it would grow, you would eat. It was fantastic. Before the fall, you know, things were so, so good. But now uh, we're disconnected. Our labor is hard. We're even at odds with those things that we labor on and those problems that we tackle to solve. And this is a huge, huge issue in the marketplace, in every, every aspect of the marketplace. One of the pictures of discipleship that Jesus gives is from the world of work where he says this in Luke 9. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. He's talking about how hard it is to do work. You know, being a Jesus follower, this is, of course, about following Jesus. Jesus is saying, you know, don't, don't put your hand to the plow and start following me and then want to turn back. But there's a broader application of this whole thing, and it actually has to do with this thing of work. Why does Jesus use this agrarian example? Well, the idea is that if I'm plowing, you know, the ground must be hard. Otherwise, why are you plowing, right? Just expect it to be hard. Um, and so the question then becomes, how would Jesus plow if he were the farmer well uh he wouldn't take five steps and go hey whoa woo time out this is hard i quit that's not the way jesus does anything thank god right he didn't come to earth and to live his life and to die whoa whoa time out i quit it's not what he does he keeps going and here's the thing he will help us Keep going even in the midst of difficulty. You've got to remember, it's never just about me and the, the pipe. It never, ever is. What I'm doing in the work world is always about more than me and just the pipe. So this Monday, whatever you do, whether it's volunteer or school or office or working at a store, working in a restaurant, whatever, you have to expect cranky customers and difficult coworkers and slow computers and stubborn um, you know, machines that don't do what they're supposed to do and, and restless students and difficult teachers and tough little ones if you're working in the home or challenging decisions or hard ground. Just expect it. It's the way the world is, this side of heaven. And this is what Jesus says to expect. He says in Matthew 6, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has, I love these words, enough trouble. Each day has enough, enough trouble of its own. <laughs> wow. Really, Jesus? You mean each day? I mean, each and every day has enough trouble? Yeah, of its own. So don't pile it up. Don't save up the trouble from yesterday to carry it into tomorrow because now it's really getting burdensome. You see, each day has enough trouble of its own. So, so Jesus is a great predictor of the future. What's going to happen today? Trouble, yeah. What's going to happen tomorrow? Trouble, right. There's going to be lots and lots of trouble. Work is full of trouble. This idea that work ought to be just this great place where I experience self-fulfillment and nonstop creativity and everybody just loves me. Everybody says, oh man, way to go. That's not work because that's not hard. Work is hard. So thou shalt embrace thy real workplace today over thy imaginary workplace of tomorrow. Okay? That's... Uh, Whoops, I mean, that's actually the next one. That's number seven. So you're with me? Work is hard. Number seven. Again, thou shalt embrace thy real workplace today over thy imaginary work tomorrow. Let me explain. 
We really need to embrace uh, our real work, whatever it is, however humble it might be, uh, however difficult, over our imaginary, grandiose, marvelous, success-driven notion of what our work might be tomorrow. The writer of Ecclesiastes says this, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you are going, that's an interesting comforting note, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. Now, it's an interesting statement made here because actually we know that in heaven there will be working, there will be planning, there will be knowledge, there will be wisdom there. What he's really saying is, is, you know what, if you've started a project here on earth, you need to know that the time you have right now today, you need to be all in and completing that work because when you die, that project is over. That's what he's really driving at here. You have now to complete this project. You don't have tomorrow necessarily. So do your job as Jesus would do your job, even if you dislike your job, even if your job is hard. And this is an increasing problem in our world because if you hate your job, you're supposed to do your job as Jesus would do it. And that's actually, hear me on this, that's actually the quickest way either into a new job, a better position, or into joy in the current job that you're doing is by doing it the way Jesus would do it. Remember, it's never just you and the pipe. Never. The real issue is never just, am I in the right job? Is my job going well? The real issue is never just, what job am I bringing myself to? The deeper issue is, am I bringing my best self to this job? That's the deeper issue, always. Paul says to the Corinthians, uh, when he's writing them a letter, he says, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, Paul was not at a conference of pastors when he wrote that. He's actually talking to a congregation just like this one. And so when he talks about the work of the Lord, he's not talking about pastor work. He's talking about any work that all of you people do. That is the work of the Lord. And we are to do it well. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So how do I do it? Well, I do it fully. I do it with all my heart, knowing the Lord is watching, knowing the Lord is with me, knowing the Lord is going to help me, knowing that what I do matters. It matters so much. People sometimes ask, how can I bring Jesus into my workplace? Well, in reality, you can't. He's already there. He is so there. Jesus is every bit as present there in your workplace as he is here when we gather for worship in this room. And Christians forget this. Let's be honest. We forget this, but this is so important. You know, when we pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, uh, that, that includes your workplace, you see. My work is God's kingdom territory just like everywhere else. In fact, you may not have thought about this. But your job will be the primary place of your personal spiritual formation. It will be. Spiritual formation is that process of shaping your inner thoughts, your desires, your habits, the way you go about making choices. That's your spiritual formation. And understand, everybody is always being spiritually formed. Everybody is is getting a spiritual formation all the time. Not just Christians, even atheists, unbelievers, people who believe in other gods. We are all of us being spiritually formed, either to become more like Jesus or less so, right? Spiritual formation is the most important thing going on in anybody's life at any given moment. 
Everybody is being spiritually formed. And your job is really an important part of your spiritual formation. How many hours do you spend at work in a week? 40, 50? Some of you would chuckle. Maybe you're spending more, you know, go through seasons of even being busier. How many hours does the average person spend in church in a week? Let's just say an hour, okay? We'll say an hour. Well, okay, think about this. Here's the deal. 40, 50 hours at work, one hour at church. The goal is not, you understand, the goal is not to try and undo what happens in 40 or 50 hours with the one hour of what unfolds in the church. The goal is to learn to be with Jesus in the 40 or 50 hours each week at work because, you see, he's already there. The goal is to transform what happens at work. He wants to advance his kingdom where you work just as much as he wants to advance his kingdom here when we gather. It's the same thing going on. He wants to transform us here, but he wants to transform work there when we go there. And he wants to do it through us. So again, thou shalt embrace thy real workplace today over thy imaginary workplace tomorrow. Okay, that's number seven. Number eight, thou shalt expand thy network. In Ecclesiastes 4, Uh, The writer of Ecclesiastes says two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. Better to work in tandem. The idea of being linked in. How many of you get LinkedIn emails? You know, people want to get linked in with you. Yeah, it's all good and stuff. I hate them, but I mean, it's all good and stuff. But uh, understand, God was linking. This idea of being linked with other people is something God says we must do. We must be linked with other people. Networking is absolutely essential to flourishing. And um, I would just say this about that. The best way to build a network, the best way to be linked in, it's not really emailing people saying, you want to link in with me. It's actually something that is more about the condition of the heart. It's actually having a heart attitude that says, I want to help people. If that's your hard attitude, you will be a LinkedIn person. You just will be. Absolutely will be. If you're a man here at Deer Creek Church, you probably know Ed Galashevsky. Ed's not in here, so I can say this about him. I can say anything about him. Uh, maybe I will. But anyway, uh, Ed is our men's ministry leader. And if you've ever spent five minutes with Ed, one of the things you know about Ed is he cares. He cares about you. He just exudes this. He wants to help you. He wants you to be loved. He wants you to know that you can be connected with with other men and connected with the Heavenly Father. There are so many people in this church that Ed has helped. Yesterday, Ed was helping someone move, and he bought pizza for all the movers, you know. Uh, Ed is uh, somebody who, when a need has arisen at someone's house and yard work needed to be done, Ed's on the phone, and they're gathering people, and a group of men go over, and Ed's usually leading that group. Uh, Ed is somebody who's got an incredible listening ear. If you've ever sat with Ed, he will listen to you. He will, he will embrace you. He'll make you feel like you can share anything you want with him. And then he blasts it out on Facebook. And uh, no, I'm kidding. That's not true. Uh, if you know Ed, Ed is a huge, uh, immensely gifted networker. Why? Not because he's sending out LinkedIn things all the time. It's because he really cares about people. And he really wants to serve people. His attitude, the attitude of Ed's being is, how can I help you? Man, if you want to be networked in a rich and deep and eternally meaningful kind of way, then care about people. Care about the people you interact with at work. Offer a listening ear. Offer a helping hand. You will have impact on people far beyond what you could even imagine just by caring. How can I help? Okay? 
So this Monday, when you wake up on Monday, you're going to say, remember, you're going to say, thank God it's Monday. You're going to say that tomorrow. And then you're also going to say, how can I help? You're going to take those two things with you to the workplace. How can I be more helpful to you? Thank God it's Monday. Thank God I'm here, right? Okay. Number nine, thou shalt remember those who cannot find work. I think this is a big one. Ecclesiastes says that a man could do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. That's true. But he says, too, he says, this, too, I see is from the hand of God. For without him, without God, (coughs) who can eat or find employment? Where does employment come from? Apparently it comes from God. It's a gift from God. One of the worst parts of unemployment, though, is, is, you know, God has made us to work. We want to work. We want to be fruitful. We want to add value to something. And uh, when suddenly you find ourselves out of work, it can really break us. My neighbor, uh, we've lived next to now for six years, found out on Thursday. Well, he was let go on Thursday. He works in the energy uh, sector of the market and uh, was let go on Thursday. He's in his mid to late 50s. And and we were talking a little bit, and it was just, uh, it, was, it was really sad. It was crushing to, to see the effect that this is having. And, um, you know, when people suddenly find themselves out of work, they, they can feel a sense of shame almost. That they can experience rejection. Uh, they have that sense of not being wanted, not being fruitful, not being productive. I read about a great hero in the faith and work department. Uh, His name is Father Greg Boyle. He's a Jesuit priest in Southern California. He started what is now called Homeboy Industries. You might have heard of this gentleman. He helps tons of young people get employed and get out of gangs. Father Boyle says this. He says, nothing stops a bullet like a job. Pretty clever and pretty insightful. Most of the young men he serves, they face histories and battles and challenges that most of us would have a hard time even understanding. We've never experienced stuff like that. He works with these young men to train them, to help them get jobs. He says the largest service that the uh, Homeboy Industries uh, now runs is a tattoo removal business. In fact, he wrote a book called Tattoos of the Heart, which I have not read, but I've heard it's very good. He talks about one of the times that he first realized the need for this business of tattoo removal. One guy who had recently gotten out of prison came to him and told him, I am having a terrible time finding a job. And he had a tattoo right across his forehead. I won't use the word that he used, but right on his forehead it said, blank the world. You get the drift. And this was a a billboard message on this young man's forehead. Can you imagine working at Nordstrom? Can Can I help you find a sofa, you know? He came to Father Boyle and said, man, I can't, I can't get a job. And Father Boyle looked at him and said, I've got an idea. Let's start a tattoo removal business. And that's what they started. And this young man was uh, in the early uh, part of starting that business. Father Boyle has helped hundreds and hundreds of young men and some women get out of gangs and get employed. It's, it's so easy, friends, to take our ability to work for granted. If you're working, it's easy for, to forget that, that your education privileges, your ability to persevere, the support you receive from a family, your IQ, your energy level, whatever, all of these, these opportunities that you have are all gifts from God. And think about it, you did nothing to earn them. You did nothing to earn them. And if you're looking for work, well, good for you. Don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on God. He is not going to give up on you. Don't give up on him. 
And if you're in a position where you hire people or manage people or develop people or have the privilege to train people, you have such a precious thing in your hand. It makes an impact on people. Ask Jesus to help you do it like he would do it. And remember what's at stake. And we need to do this all the time, see, because remember, it's, it's never just you and the pipe. It never is. Not ever. Not ever. Here's the last commandment. Thou shalt not retire. Did you know the word retire is literally not in the Bible? God the Father did not retire in Genesis 2 after his week of creation. One time Jesus was criticized for actually doing, for healing someone on the Sabbath. And he responded by saying this in John 5. He said, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. The Aberdeen study that I mentioned earlier said that people are increasingly expressing a strong desire to retire earlier and earlier, starting at around age 55. And that's partly because of the burden and the stress that people feel in the work environment. They don't have anyone with whom to share a yoke, you see. Now, of course, you may someday stop doing your present paid job. We all are going to stop doing our present paid job. I get petitions all the time to stop doing my present paid job. But, you know, not going to do it. And... uh, but uh, someday, someday I will. But like I, like I said last week, <laughs> I can't believe I did that. You, uh, <laughs> uh, you ought never, I said last week, you ought never to stop working out of your calling. Yes, you'll stop doing your paid job someday, but don't stop working out of your calling, the passion, the abilities, the, the gifts, the resources that God has given you. Because when you stop doing that, don't you understand you start dying? And here's why you start dying. Because now your purpose for living is so small. It's just you, you see. It's just you. God didn't make you just to serve you. God didn't make you just to focus on you. You know, one of the big three things that we talk about around here, uh, we talk about up in and out, or other words that we use for this, or worship. God made us to connect with him and worship. That's why we emphasize, be here with us on Sunday. And then we talk about the importance of connecting. That's networking. That's being connected to each other in ways that make a difference. That's absolutely huge. And and then the third thing we talk about is serving. You know, you, you have to take the calling that God has given you, and you have to employ it in the service of others. That's how you add value, don't you see? You, you've got to work. You don't retire. You know, life is never about the pursuit of pleasant manageability. Come on. People think, oh, the day I retire, I I can travel and I can go see the kids and I can do, oh, yeah, for a while. Then what? Boredom. Meaninglessness. You know, life is not just about recreating. God didn't make you for that. It's about joining in the grand work that God himself is doing. There is a reason that we say, thank God, it's Monday. What's the day before Monday? Oh, Sunday. Well, the reason historically that the whole world now takes Sunday off is because 2,000 years ago, the work of a carpenter on a cross got finished. And our sins got paid for, and our guilt was atoned for. And on Sunday, death was defeated, and our hope was secured, rock solid, secured. And on Monday, we joined Jesus in his project 
of announcing and living out that message of extending and establishing his kingdom to all the schools that we go to and the restaurants we visit or work in and the offices and the stores and the museums, you name it. I mean, imagine every week we get to make God's kingdom visible to others by how we act, how we serve, how we connect, how we work. This is the point of it all, friends. And we want to do what we do the way Jesus would do it. Yeah, there are problems in the workplace. Man, plenty of them. And sometimes we get discouraged or we get disappointed because it is hard. But that's why we gather here today for an hour or so each week to encourage each other, to remember these things together, to recalibrate and refresh and refuel. And then we wake up again on the next day on Monday and we go out with the spirit and the power and the love of Jesus knowing that what we do makes an eternal difference. If you have any less of a perspective than that, then your perspective is wrong. What we do and get to do is so glorious. I mean, it's so glorious. Getting to change diapers for Jesus, is that glorious? That's called human being making. You bet that's glorious. And if you think that all you're doing is changing diapers, well, you're wrong because it's not about just you and the... It's not about that. It's about so much more. It's about so much more. Well, those are the Ten Commandments. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about the seven deadly sins of work. Okay? Let's pray. Father... Help us to have a healthy, rich, theologically deep understanding of what you have called us to, of the beauty of work, even in the midst of difficulty and challenge. Help us to work as if yoked together with Jesus. Change our perspective. Change how we interact and network with people. Help us to care about and love on people. God, May our work spiritually transform us. And may our work spiritually transform this world so that the kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, would come more and more to be visible here on earth. This we ask in his name. Amen.